At this point, allow me to read the Word of God to you from 2 John, the, the letter of 2 John, which uh, if you're turning to it in a physical copy of the Scriptures is close to the end. It's, if, uh, it's after 1 John. If you've hit 3 John, you've gone too far. And 2 John is really short. Um, it, it, it takes up probably just one page on your Bible. But we will read it together. It is God's Word. It is holy and inspired. And it is my joy to be able to read it to you. So listen carefully. This is God's Word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, uh, once again, we ask that you would bless your word, uh, give us wisdom to understand, and then also wisdom to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we are looking at 2 John, and this is a unique opportunity. We get to cover an entire book of the Bible in one sermon. That rarely happens, um, but it's actually a relatively short chapter, so it shouldn't, in theory, be that hard. Um, But we do need to cover a few basic points of context to figure out who's speaking and who is he speaking to, and it's actually a big question, because the first line of 2 John says, the elder, uh, which by all accounts, is, is the Apostle John. Basically, all commentators believe that whoever wrote this is, in fact, the Apostle John. Uh, so it's, it's worth just assuming that this is the Apostle John who wrote this letter. We're going to take that at face value. But a little bit more ambiguous is the elect lady who he's talking to. Who is this mystery woman, we may ask? Uh, and if you look at the commentators across Christian history, there's been a lot of uh, clever and uh, creative ideas as to the identity of this elect lady. 
So who is she? Well, uh, a few clues at least points me and, and a lot of uh, good commentators in a certain direction. Uh, the Greek word for lady that's used here is a designation of respect and dignity, but it was also a word that was commonly used to talk about assemblies of people, multiple people. And most of the verbs and pronouns used in this letter by John to the people he's writing to are plural. They're ta- he's talking to multiple people, multiple people who are loved by God and loved by him because they are loved by God. And, and, and so if you think about what could this and who could this assembly of people be, I think John is writing to a church. The elect lady is an elect assembly of God's people. He's writing to a church, a specific congregation, not just the church generally, but to a specific congregation that he knows and that he probably has a degree of shepherding authority uh, as an apostle. He's probably spent some time there teaching and, and doing some shepherding work at that church. Uh, now, the, the word elect, let's not pass over that either. It means chosen. Uh, and, and this is an intriguing word as well. Uh, this community has been chosen by God and then also by John as an object of love. Uh, This community, in fact, is defined by giving and receiving love because they've received it from God. A community that's defined by giving and receiving love. Now, whether we're talking about a church or any other community in the world, everybody's looking for that. Everybody wants a community where they can find love. Now, where do you find a community like that? Well, uh, a, a possible modern place to get that and uh, I learned this from a New York Times article I read a few months ago, um, is in something called a chosen family. Have you heard of chosen families? These are uh, communities created outside of the, I'm quoting the article now, created outside of the structures of and often in place of the traditional nuclear family. When a family of origin is absent or unsupportive, A chosen family is essential, says the author of this article, cultivating close supportive relationships with neighbors, friends, and colleagues. Now, there's something compelling about that, isn't there? Love, interdependence, as well as shared joy and sorrow in in a community. Uh, It it, it sounds great. But what's the rub? Uh, Let me quote the article again. The beauty of a chosen family is that you opt into it. There's freedom in that. An opportunity to co-create a community that suits your values. So again, that sounds compelling, doesn't it? We get to choose the place where we're going to give and receive love, but if the thing that's so great about it is that you opted into it, then that's also the thing upon upon which the community is founded. And stands or falls. Your choice. Your ability to choose a community that is right for you. In which you are going to receive love. And the trustworthiness of everyone else in that community to give you love. And their worthiness to receive yours. It becomes kind of a shaky thing, doesn't it? And and, and we can ask, is that what love is in the first place? A self-serving choice dependent thing uh, that's dependent on the worthiness of others? And on yourself? If so, I love you just got a lot less romantic, didn't it? 
But we can tend to treat it that way, even in a church context, if we're not careful. And so we need to remind ourselves what love is and what it looks like in a church. And, and, and that's at least in part what John is getting to in Second John. Because from the very first words here, he gives us a different vision rooted in God's choice, not just ours, but in God's choice, God's organization, God's love for his people. And if this church is going to be a community like that, we need to figure out a very important thing. One of the main themes in this letter is unifying truth and love. Unifying truth and love. It's kind of what this is all about. So unifying truth and love. I want to look at that under three headings. First of all, connecting truth and love. Secondly, protecting truth and love. And third, smelling the breath of the ones that you love. So first of all, connecting truth and love. So this is really from the first five verses. Uh, if, you, if you were to read them again, you would find that truth and love saturate everything that John says. Uh, I, I think it's truth he mentions five times and love he mentions four times. Just like truth, love, truth, love, truth, love. All over the place. Truth is incredibly important for love to work. Uh, we know this, right? Because love is this, this, this uh, inclination we have to go out and do something good for other people. Do something good for the world. But sometimes we can get guilted into feeling the need to go do this. Sometimes we see all of the problems and we want to just go do it in, in, in a flurry of activity. But in truth, comes along and says, oh, slow down. It's okay. Don't go so fast. Let's take a minute and take a breath and think about what we're doing and make sure that it's according to the truth and make sure that it's actually worth doing and actually loving. It gives love a foundational basis for being itself. On the other hand, though, love is incredibly important for truth to work, because truth loves to ask deep questions about things, but love sets an alarm for truth and makes sure that truth gets up out of bed in the morning. Love makes sure that truth puts on good clothes for work. Love makes truth a stiff pot of coffee and sends truth out into the world to do something about itself. So love and truth and truth and love need each other. And every good thing that we do, especially in the church, relies on both truth and love being prioritized. That's why the Apostle John talks about them together. In fact, the advocacy for uniting truth and love is what the Apostle John has in common with the Canadian classic rock band, Rush. Uh, it might be the only thing that, that the Apostle John has in common with Rush, um, but there's a song that Rush wrote back in the 70s, and I would play the whole thing for you, but it's like 18 minutes long, so I won't. Let me just read to you the last few lines of the lyrics. It's this song that is really this epic tale about the truth and love being divided, and finally they come together at the end, and the people grow in this community of beauty and truth and love, and it's this amazing utopian dream. Uh, And this is the description. Let the truth of love be lighted. Let the love of truth shine clear. Sensibility, armed with sense and liberty, with heart and mind united in a single perfect sphere. A single perfect sphere. That's beautiful. Uh, Symbiosis, harmony, Completion. 
the life of the whole community just surrounding oneself in, uh, like, like a beautiful orchestra, playing every note in tune. The truth leading to love, leading to truth, leading to love and repeat. But you see, the only problem is that in reality, this almost never happens, right? It's, it, it's almost impossible to prioritize both truth and love together. Inside and outside the church, we see this all over the place. So, uh, just to illustrate this, think of two different people. Two very different people, and you've probably met them before. I won't give them names, but you've probably met them before. And when I describe them, you might think of actual people. So we'll call them person A and person B. Uh, Person A, for whatever reason, is wired to prioritize truth in the way that they live their life. And person B, on the other hand, is wired to prioritize love in how they live their life. So person A, let's, let's think about person A. And I think I fall more into the person A category, so I, I sort of just describe myself as I think about person A. Um, so I'm, I'm going to use first person pronouns. But this is person A. I love truth, uh, philosophy, propositional statements. Uh, I, I love thinking in that way. The, the Westminster Larger Catechism, surprisingly, sometimes makes me emotional. I, I, I love that stuff. The beauty and the variability of endless complexity coming together in statements of truth that make sense and accurately describe reality. That's exciting to me. And if it were up to me, the whole world would be a better place if everyone spent more time just thinking contemplatively about the nature of reality, and then we would come together in wisdom and actually finally be able to love with practical wisdom. That would work, right? Maybe not. But that's how I'm wired to think. Church life would be Bible studies and Bible studies and sermons and sermons and sermons and more sermons until we would finally be equipped to be Christians. Now, maybe it's philosophy or chemistry or physics or a computer programming language that makes you excited in the same way. But some of you, like me, are person A. You love truth. But what about person B? Person B, you believe in love. You are skeptical of the purely theoretical and rational propositional statements, not because your intellect is lacking, by the way. You're, you're probably able, if you had to, to pick apart some of the, the theories of theologians and scientists and economic theorists. But you don't have to. Your biggest point is, is, is the fact that they've, and people like that, have been in power for so long, and there's still so many problems in the world that are not fixed and don't seem to be getting fixed, that the pure theology and philosophy is just not doing the job in your mind. So what if we flipped the script and made love primary, and we actually got out there and did things with the things that we thought about? That would actually get stuff done, wouldn't it? So that's person A and person B. Here's a question. Can they be friends? Can person A and person B be friends? Can they coexist in the same space? Can they spend time together and really get to know one another better and come out of that interaction loving one another more? Left up to us, probably not. And it's not because their views are incompatible. Remember, truth and love need each other. 
but because we're too filled with pride to hear each other's perspective on truth, and we're too prideful in and of itself, we lack the love to be patient with one another when disagreements come up. You see, the nagging thing about Second John is that he seems to stubbornly not recognize that at first. He, 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 he doesn't just say, well, it's possible for truth and love to coexist. He actually assumes that they're friends. And it, it, at first it doesn't make sense to us. You, you get the sense that he's like up in the clouds somewhere when you hear him talking about truth and love. It's hard to fathom how this could be the case. How do truth and love get united? Well, John's point comes a little bit um, in a cryptic way, but when you see it, you can't unsee it. You see, verse 7 forms a a crucial transitional point in this text, Uh, and it's pretty much right in the middle of the the text. It's actually, verse 7 is the middle verse in our English versions, and the two words that are exactly in the middle of verse 7 are... Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is actually the key here. That's a very Sunday school answer, but it's true. He's the key. He needs to be the center of our community. He needs to be the center of our life because he is the key that unites truth and love. Why? Because Jesus is truth and love. He is the truth and he is love. There are few qualities in Scripture that God uses to self-identify, that he says, I am this, and truth and love are among those few qualities. As the truth, when God speaks, what comes from his mouth is true and pure and life-giving, perfectly conforming to reality. And that's really all that we should need to know It's the best reason for doing anything good. It's the best reason for believing the truth. It's because God said it. But that's not good enough for us in our sin because we've rejected God. So what do we do? Better yet, what does God do about that? He puts on love and sent Christ. Uh, Filling out the phrase in verse 7, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is God, the truth, putting on love in the person of Jesus Christ. When God decided to love the world, meaning he saw the truth of where we were in our sin, he did whatever it took to bring us back to him, which was sending truth in human form. He incarnated himself in Jesus. The person of Jesus literally is love. So when we think of the truth, we shouldn't just think about propositional statements, true facts. We should think about the one full of love who speaks them to us, God's voice in Christ. And when we think of love, we shouldn't just think about actions and things that we need to do. We should think about the one who first has done that for us, that we can be like him, God's son, Jesus And so think of person A and person B in the middle of a church bar fight. They're about to get at each other with each other's posse behind their backs. But then maybe it comes up in passing. Wait a minute, you know Jesus too? And at first it's mind-blowing because truth and love can't coexist. 
It's like, how do you know Jesus? You don't believe the right stuff. Well, how do you know Jesus? You're not very loving. But then Jesus helps us realize that we need to slow down and actually believe the truth about himself in relation to one another, and we actually need to love one another. And he will help us do that in our communities. Because what Christ has done, far from magically removing conflict, is that he has excised from the conflict the assumption that we're each other's enemies if we're different from one another. Jesus, or John's command to love one another is the same thing as saying that we need to center the relationships and actions in our church around Christ. And, and the real rub of this is that we will stand or fall based on how we do that. We will stand or fall based on how we center Jesus in our community and in our life. And that moves us on to the second point, protecting truth and love. Protecting truth and love. So the, the context behind verses 8 to 11, uh, where John is, is talking about and warning the, the, the church there about um, protecting truth and love, is that there, in the early church there were a lot of these itinerant preachers traveling around and helping support the ministry of the early church. It was hard to find uh, good teachers. It was hard to find good preachers. And often the church was growing so much that there were more churches than people able to preach often. And so pre- uh, these itinerant teachers would travel around from church to church teaching and instructing and helping and guiding, and they would need a place to stay. So the church members would offer their homes. But it seems that false teachers those who didn't believe the truth that the apostles taught, but were trying to teach something different, something else. And that took various forms, but dangerous teaching nonetheless. They would do the same thing. They would mimic the actions of these teachers. They would go out into the world proclaiming their truth, not God's truth through the apostles, but their truth, and they would pretend to be legit, and they would ask for places to stay. And that explains why John can say something so stark like, you participate in their evil works if you give them a a glass of water and and a place to lay their head. And and this is actually the main reason that John wrote this letter. Uh, Probably the, the, the thing that precipitated it is just to say this one thing. If anyone comes to you denying the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, don't let them in. Don't let them in. So he begins verse 8 with this warning. He says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. In this context, watch yourselves, lest you lose out on a full reward. Now, as he's talking about losing out on a reward, what kind of reward is he talking about? Uh, I think he's talking about a reward of fruitfulness rather than losing out on salvation. Um, so he, he's talking to a, a healthy church, a pretty healthy church here. Uh, based on the things that he's saying, he appreciates uh, the, the fact that Jesus is being faithfully taught, that they are a community full of truth and love. He's thankful uh, that the children of the church, whether that's actual children or people that are, have been uh, spiritually raised, as it were, in the church, they're walking in truth and love. This is a, a faithful, healthy church by and large. But he's still concerned about various rewards. Uh, He's concerned about the effectiveness, the fruitfulness of their ministry. 
He's not just worried that the false teaching will make them deny the faith altogether, because that's probably not going to happen right away. But that's not the only bad thing that false teaching can do. It can also make us just unfruitful. uh, it, It can hijack our ministry. You know, I think if John came and did an apostolic audit on this church to just see how things are, he probably wouldn't look at this church and say, you guys are about to deny the faith entirely. That's probably not what he would say. But he would probably find, in more subtle ways, some things that... that he would be concerned about, not at the level of denying the faith, but on the level of, well, this is maybe hijacking your ministry a little bit, limiting the effectiveness of what you do. There are kinds of falsehood that isn't really wrong per se, but just maybe a misprioritization. And when we misprioritize things, that can lead to further untruth and unhealth. And, and, and this is where we get back to the idea of centering Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, as the most important thing. Because Christ come in the flesh to save us is not just a true thing that we need to remember and we need to believe and say in a creed every once in a while. It's the thing that needs to animate our lives. And if that's not, then something else will. And even if that something else is not uh, false... It can still take Christ's place as the center. And and what can happen, and what's actually been a trend in American religion for the last hundred years, is that something that is not Jesus Christ come in the flesh to save us becomes the center or creeps into the center of a church and its life together, its community. And what that does is it doesn't take them off the rails immediately. It just makes them unfruitful in ministry now. They get caught up in dissension and bitterness tomorrow. They get carried away and probably into serious false teaching decades from that time. And then 50 years down the road, they're not even a church anymore. You know, in, 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 in the city of Seattle, there are a lot of old church buildings that are falling apart because Christ has left the, those places long ago. Because long, long ago, they decided that something else was more important than Christ. That's always a danger. And so that's why we need to watch ourselves. And, and, and take heart, because we're not doomed to repeat that trend over and over again. We, we're really not. There are other amazing trends that God, that God helps his church to, to live out. Healthy communities of believers that worship God in the spirit and in truth, growing in their knowledge of Christ and love for one another and their neighbors, and they end up growing and planting other churches. Let's do that instead. That's a much better trend. Uh, let me put it another way. What does Grace Presbyterian Church have to offer Mount Vernon? What do you have to offer your neighbors and your community around here? It's not how smart you are. You're a smart bunch, 
But on average, you're probably not smarter than all of your neighbors. So if, if, if you come to your people and present yourselves as the smart ones, they're going to see through that. It's also not how loving you are. Um, because this, this is a loving group of people. But you're probably not as loving as you think you are. At least my church is not as loving as we think we are. And your neighbors probably see that and know that too. We fail in, in our love for people. We're slow to it. Uh, we are. So our truth and our love in and of itself is not really what we should be trying to offer people because that's not much. What we're offering to people is Jesus because he is the truth and the love that God has given to the world. And if we keep him at the center of everything we do and what we're offering, that's a huge thing. That's something that no one has to answer, that no one else has to offer. And we get to be the privilege of being the hands and the feet, the mouths and ears of God, and serve and tell and care and love that message into our community and to our neighbors around us. So if anyone comes along to turn you away from that, don't let them in, right? Uh, and, and, and you're probably not going to have a traveling itinerant false preacher showing up at your door looking for a place to stay this week. If you do, don't let them in. But, 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 but that's probably not what, that's, what this is going to look like in, in, in your life over the next seven days. So what might this look like? Well, low-hanging fruit first, um, false teaching uh, of, of the kind of subtle, especially of the subtle, not essentials of the faith, but still misprioritizing things kind. Uh, it's possible that that could get taught from this pulpit. It's possible that that could get taught from a Bible study, and certainly from a podcast or something that you listen to. Um, so watch yourself. Be diligent. Always be comparing what you're hearing against the Word of God. And especially if it's something that's happening in this church community, that, that doesn't have to be an existential threat, but I, I think it's a reminder that this place needs to be a safe place to call out a falsehood, to call out uh, untruth. Uh, in other words, if, if you see something or hear something, report it. Um, you have elders for a reason, and you have their emails for a reason. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go and email your elders with all of the things that you think are, are not good with what's happening right now. Um, what I'm saying is that this, this community, because it's built on truth and love as it is in Jesus, is not a community founded on uh, radical equality of diverging views and that, and that we have to be tolerant of absolutely everything that could possibly be said or believed. This community is built on the truth and love that is in Jesus. And so if something happens or if something is said that is divergent from that, we need to, be able, we need to have a way to talk about it. And so I think that's something worth thinking about for your community. How, how, how is that talked about? How is that dealt with? Um, it's especially for, you know, when your next pastor, Lord willing, comes, 
Let me just say, it's, it's, it's almost impossible that he's going to speak the truth 100% of the time. He's a pretty great guy if he does. Um, but you need to have a way in love to bring that up and talk about that. Because, again, truth and love is the foundation of this church. I want to apply this a little bit deeper, though, because on the one hand, we're not called to shun those who are unloving or untruthful, especially when it comes to our neighbors and friends. We're not called to shun them. We're almost always in Scripture called to move towards them and love. But we still do have to be careful about the access of influence that we allow into our minds, into our thinking. Uh, it's, it's very possible that as we are existing in the world and, and, and encountering a broad spectrum of voices, maybe, that we are influenced unhealthily in some way. Um, this isn't just for your kids either. The mature Christians can be led astray. Uh, think about the people that you spend time with, the people that you listen to, the people that you think are compelling and interesting, um, whether that's on political issues, whether that's on all kinds of all kinds of different things, and again, just be 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 diligent. Watch yourself. Is Jesus Christ at the center of your life? And if something is tearing, pulling you away, feel free to shut the door. It's worth shutting the door on something if that's going to keep Christ at the center of your life. Well, real quick, with the with the last couple minutes here, let me move on to the, the last point, smelling the breath of those you love. And this is coming from the last couple of verses, um, where we're almost set for John to, to leap into the rest of a wonderful letter, but he closes it off and says, I don't want to write anymore to you. I want to come and visit you. I don't want to write anymore. I want to come and see you face to face. I want to experience your presence. You see, that is the trajectory that John's love for this church took. And he could have written another wonderful, beautiful, theologically deep letter. He could have furthered his reputation in the early church as a wonderful epistle writer. But instead, he chose to make his love small, insignificant, even invisible. He said, I'm not going to write anymore. I'm going to leave this as a small hard-to-figure-out, kind of obscure letter that's going to be at the back of our Bibles and almost never read. But I'm going to come and talk to you and, and, and personally minister to you. And I think that, that's so significant, isn't it? We, we live in a culture where our love, because our truth is a mile wide and an inch deep, our love is a mile wide and an inch deep. We, we're, we're taught by the, the movers and shakers, by, by the, the people who are authorities on love in our culture. We're taught to broadcast our loving statements on social media, but then not do anything about the people that need to be loved next door. Uh, in, in, again, in, in my city, just taking my city for example, uh, probably nine, 90% of people are, at least in the neighborhoods I'm familiar with, our upper, upper middle class um, folks, they don't have really physical needs. They can afford life. Um, but then there are these corners, these pockets of Seattle where radical homelessness and crime 
exist. And they're kind of pushed away. And there's, there's this one street, uh, you, you might be familiar with it, Aurora Avenue in Seattle, uh, that is just this magnet for crime and shame and dirt and grime and sin and also just brokenness and homelessness and poverty and sadness. And, and people from East Seattle drive across Aurora to get to West Seattle and vice versa. And no one seems to do anything about it. And the authorities are at a loss to know what to do about it, especially since COVID. And we just sort of push them aside. But even you get half a block off Aurora Ave and you're back into these beautiful upper middle class homes with signs out front broadcasting their love to the world. But, but Christians can kind of be the same way. Uh, we, 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 we talk about how much we love God and we love others. But it's really hard to get out and love people that need love. And, and, and COVID has hurt this. It, it's no surprise that living in a season where we ha- are spending less time face-to-face smelling the breath of our neighbors um, makes it harder to love our neighbors. Uh, and, and that was certainly necessary for a time, but as we're beginning, as we continue to move out of the COVID season, we need to be thinking about how, how are we going to kickstart rhythms of love again in our communities? How are we going to get to know people? How, how are we going to be normal human beings as God has taught us to be normal human beings in truth and in love? Um, and it's going to look very countercultural. It needs to look like Christ. Ultimately, the reason why John wrote such a short letter is because he was mimicking the love that God has showed him. Because Jesus, you could say, almost said the exact same thing. God said the exact same thing to us. He could have sent a textbook of truth and said, believe this. And then a rule book and said, obey this. And again, that would have been enough, but in another sense, it wouldn't have been enough for us because of our sin. And that's not all he did. God didn't just write with paper and ink. He came to us face to face in Jesus and did exactly what we needed him to do, which was to take our sin upon himself and die for us. And out of response to that, John says to this church, I'm not going to write a letter. I'm going to come and be with you. And so how are we going to respond to that? I'm sure there are all kinds of ways that we can do the same kind of thing. I'm not just going to broadcast my love in a way that doesn't make any difference. I'm going to believe the truth and move towards those who need me and those to, those who, moving towards those who need you in love so that we will be built up Uh, as the community of Christ to be like him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for how you have delivered us from sin and and the example that you have left us in doing that, that we would move towards others. I thank you, Lord, that you are the truth. You speak truth. Everything you say is, is, is to be believed. And when we struggle, I thank you that you come and be near us Uh, by your spirit. You give us your presence. You help us. You comfort us. 
You lead us and you guide us into truth. That's what you've promised to do by your spirit. And so we pray that that example, that truth and that love that we have in you, that that would be the center of everything that we do and and everything that we are so that we would be a shining light in a world that needs uh, truth and love. Uh, and, and, And we pray that we would see your truth and your love spread. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.